0: The book of Mark chronicles the last three years of Jesus here on earth. They were pretty intense years, to say the least. Since meeting John the Baptist, he was faced with temptations in the desert, performed miracles, healed people, gained followers, was transfigured and died a criminal's death, only to be raised from the dead. Why should all this matter to you and me? Join us for... The last three. How's everybody doing this evening? There we go. Amen. So glad to be with you this evening. Also grateful that uh, our service here in Brickell is at 5 p.m. on Sunday night because with daylight savings it doesn't affect us as bad. Because you don't you lose an hour, but you just sleep an extra hour. You know you don't have to wake up extra early to go to church in the morning. And so that's one of the many blessings of Night Church. Uh, I always tell people that until we, my family and I, we moved down here seven years ago, had never done Night Church before. And I don't know if I can go back now. Any other Night Church fans in the room? Yeah. Well, you're here so you kinda have to be at least a little bit of a fan, right? Because you're here. Uh, We are excited that you are here with us this evening as we've already spent time as God's people, worshiping God praying to God, uh, sharing in the stories of what God's people are doing. As Simone shared, your generosity is reaching not only this church and this city, but all the way in Recife, Brazil, through our bridge movement. And I want to thank you as well for all your contributions uh, to the mission of this church because it goes far beyond what you can see. And at the beginning of the year, we started this series called The Last Three as we're moving through the book of Mark. And we said we're going to go all the way up until Easter, now, I, I realized this this morning, and it, it kind of took me aback, and that is Easter is five weeks away. It, this year is going by so fast, five weeks away until we're, we're, until we're at Easter. And so this evening, as we are picking up in Mark chapter 11, we are now, the, the narrative begins to slow down. Things moved quite quickly for the first 11 chapters through the three years of Jesus' public ministry. But now Mark begins to slow things down, and the the next five weeks we spend just around the last week of Jesus' life. And so the, the sermon title this evening is When Faith Withers, and you'll understand what that means and how we see that in our text this evening. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Mark chapter 11. If you have the Crossbridge Brickle app, you can open the notes section and follow along there as well. So let me kind of bring us up to speed on where we're at. Last week, we saw Jesus in Jericho, which is a city outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus performs a miracle there. He heals a man who asks for mercy. And Jesus and the disciples and a large crowd of people are moving with him as he goes from the Sea of Galilee all the way down, as we saw in Jericho, heading towards Jerusalem. It's about to be Passover week. And Jesus knows he's walking into the last week of his life, where he will give his life for the salvation of many. And so Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. He's with his disciples, and he comes to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a small mountain that is overlooking Jerusalem. Now, as he's approaching, he tells his disciples, two of them, to go ahead and get a donkey. They get a donkey, they come back, and Jesus, he... Proceeds into Jerusalem with this very famous scene we celebrate it every year on Palm Sunday. It's the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Passover week, the last week of his life when he will be crucified. Now, Jesus, as he's moving into the city, they are laying down their cloaks, they are they cut off palm branches, is why we call Palm Sunday. They're waving them, they're laying them down before Jesus, and they're chanting. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna means, please save us. So they're saying, please save us, please save us. Now, this is, What's interesting about this is that this occurrence with Jesus, the laying down the cloaks and the palm branches and, and maybe even chanting Hosanna, is not uncommon. This road that Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem is called the Pilgrim's Road. And so when there were prophets and they were coming to the fulfillment of their their calling, or they were bringing a message to God's people in God's city, which is Jerusalem, the city of God, Zion, people would usher them in. There would be heralds that would chant things and lay down their robes and maybe put out palm branches. And so they are doing this for Jesus because there's a lot of intrigue around Jesus. Some people see him as a threat. That's what the religious leaders see him as. And then some people see him as a prophet, as a great teacher, and others believe that he is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God. So this crowd is ushering Jesus in, chanting, please save us, please save us. And they get into Jerusalem and all of a sudden the crowd disappears. It's almost as if they think to themselves, well, we did our job. We ushered this prophet, maybe son of God, maybe Messiah. We don't know. We, we did our job on the pilgrim's road. They go back to their normal life. And Jesus and the disciples go into the temple. Now, when they get into the temple, it says it's at night. All of these details are really important, so track with me. They get into the temple at night, and it says they leave because they've got to go back. The sun is setting. The temple is closing. And in the temple, they're kind of assessing things. And Jesus, in particular, is seeing how it's operating how the temple is functioning. They go back out of Jerusalem to a town called Bethany, this small town where Jesus has friends. It's on the Mount of Olives. They stay there in the evening. They wake up in the morning to go back to the temple early in the morning. And then we read this very strange account of what happens as Jesus and the disciples are heading back into the temple in the morning. Remember, they were there the night before, kind of taking stock of what's happening. And then we read in verse 12 through 14, Mark chapter 11, the following. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. That's Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Figs were a common, very sweet, delicious fruit that was very popular in the region. And he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. Now this is in the springtime, so there's sometimes the fig tree would have a little kind of uh, nobules on it. You could like right before they have the fruit, you could taste it, but there's nothing on it because it's not the full season for the fruit to be produced. And he said to it, to the tree, "May no one ever eat fruit from you again." And and the disciples heard it. So here's a question: Is Jesus just having a bad morning? Is he hangry? You know, it's like he's hungry. He sees the fig tree. And then he goes to the fig tree knowing it's not the season for the tree to produce figs. Maybe little kind of, you know, little things you could eat. But there's nothing on it. And he curses the tree and says, would no one ever eat fruit of you again? And it says his disciples hear it. Is he just in a bad mood? Now listen. If you spend any time reading scripture, you always know to think, of, think this way. Whenever you read an account that's kind of strange or kind of throws you off, you know that there is always something taking place below the surface. When there are events that are startling or shocking or confusing, there's something taking place below the surface, and Jesus is doing this intentionally. You're going to see all of this kind of line up here in Mark chapter 11. You see, the fig tree is not just a tree that people would eat because it tastes good and it's a nice snack. The fig tree in the, book of, in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament oftentimes was used to symbolize Israel, God's people's status before God. So in the book of Micah, it seems as if Jesus is actually connecting to the book of Micah. It says that, that Israel, God's people, are like a fig tree. And that they're actually absent of righteousness and what God desires is a ripe fig. But they're a dead fig tree. They're not producing fruit. And Jesus is picking this up again as he is speaking not just about he's having a bad mood and he's hungry and there's no figs. But he's wanting to prepare the disciples for something he's going to teach them this day. Because all the details are important. It says that the disciples heard it when he curses this fig tree. So other interesting details too. It says that when Jesus sees the tree, he sees leaves on it. But leaves on a tree oftentimes cover up the fruit. And so he goes closer to look and sees that there is in fact no figs. You see, what Jesus is going to begin to reveal to the disciples throughout this day is that God's people, Israel, as compared in this fig tree, they have the outer garments of righteousness. They're very religious. They're performing the activities of God's people well, but they have no fruit. They have the leaves. They look like a tree that's healthy, but when you take a closer look, they are not functioning properly. They're not producing the very thing they were made to produce. So Jesus is going to help the disciples and us this evening see this. So he curses the tree, the disciples hear it, and then we read this account, Mark 11, starting in verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, now they go inside the gates of Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything from the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, it is, not, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is an often cited passage about Jesus. Kind of connects, maybe you think he is, in fact, having a bad day. He's hungry, there's no figs. Now he goes in the temple, he starts flipping tables over. But Jesus goes in, remember the night before, he took assessment, so he's prepared. This is all strategic. He curses the fig tree, symbolizing God's people who are producing no fruit. They just have the outer garments. They look healthy, but internally, inside, it's corrupt. He takes the disciples into the temple, and we know from other gospels that they are in the outer part of the temple called the court of the Gentiles, so they go into this area that is the only area in the entire temple where non-Jews can go. See, they they were they were barred from going any deeper into the temple. They could only go in this one area, the court of Gentiles, the court of non-Jews. That was consecrated for them to pray and to worship God. Those that were seeking God, that were far off, maybe they were not raised in the faith of scripture. They didn't know Jehovah, the God of the Bible, and yet maybe somebody shared with them, and they became intrigued. They could go into the court of the Gentiles, and they could worship, they could pray, and they could ask questions, they could receive teaching. And here in this court, there's a marketplace. Now, we know that this was probably a a recent occurrence because on the Mount of Olives, they would have certified markets where you would go to buy some of these sacrificial objects. You would exchange money for certain things in the temple. To give an offering, you would buy pigeons for sacrifice, other things. This was on the Mount of Olives. It was not to be within the temple grounds. And yet what most scholars believe is Caiaphas, the high priest, the very one who condemned Jesus to death, wanted more power and maybe a little kickback from the sale of these objects. So he puts the marketplace in what he views is the least significant place in the temple, the court of the Gentiles where the non-Jews are. So Jesus comes in. He's already scouted it out the night before. He's just cursed the fig tree, symbolizing Israel, God's people. And then he goes in and he starts to flip over tables. And he starts to declare that they have turned God's house, which is to be a house of prayer, he says, for all the nations, into a den of robbers. So Jesus is revealing something here. Revealing something not only about Israel but about the heart of God too. See, God's heart has always been, always been and always will be for all the nations. He invites all people to come and to glean and to listen and to hear about who he is. To pray and to worship. All people are invited in. And Jesus is appalled when the religious elite and the religious leaders have Desecrated the very area for all people to gather together and to worship. And he flips over the tables. And then he declares in verse 17b, as we just read, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. You see, they have robbed the Gentiles of their one place of worship in the temple. They have robbed God's house of its purpose, which is to be a place of prayer and made it a place of personal gain, a marketplace. God's house is not reserved for such things. It is not to be a place where people are getting a kickback or people are, are putting their power forward to increase their authority or for personal gain. It is to be a place for all people and all nations to come and inquire and ask and learn and pray and worship doesn't matter the family you were raised in, doesn't matter what you've went through, all people are invited into that space and Jesus flips the tables over. Imagine the disciples. I mean, this is the most significant holy place in the entire world, the temple of God. And Jesus has just entered into the scene and started flipping the tables over and driving people out declaring that the very people that have, are heralded as the leaders and spiritual authorities of God's people have made God's house a den of robbers. I mean, they are shook to the core. After this happens, Jesus takes the disciples and they head back out of Jerusalem, back to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And they stay there in the evening, and in the morning, they return back. Now, for the third time, it's the third day, they come back into Jerusalem. Now, look what we read in verse 20. Verse 20, it says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, look, the fig tree that you, have, that you cursed has withered. You see all the pieces coming together? Jesus curses the fig tree, symbolizing God's people who look great on the outside, but internally there's no fruit. They go into the temple, and Jesus then flips over the tables and drives everybody out and says, You have made God's house a house not of prayer, but a den of robbers. And then the next morning they go back and they see the fig tree, and it is withered all the way to the roots, totally corrupted and destroyed. It is dead to the core. You see, Jesus has used this fig tree to physically reveal what has happened spiritually to God's people that was just validated the day before when they were in the temple. God's people have withered faith. Their faith has withered. You see, God's people are meant to be people that have fruitful faith, not just leaves. They don't just look good on the outside and look as if they're performing, and living out their purpose, but they are also producing the very fruit of God working in them. God's people are to be fruitful people with fruitful faith, and yet we see here that they are in a season where they are withered, not just on the branches, but all the way to the core. The most important part of a tree is its roots, because that's where it takes its sustenance, water, and nutrients, and it is dead to... The core. Now, here's a very important question to ask How has Israel, how have God's people become so withered in their faith? What has led to this point, to where they would think they could turn the temple into a marketplace, to where their faith would be so withered? The answer is the object of their faith has shifted. You see, it's very clear throughout the Gospels when you look at this. First, you see the religious elite, the high priests and the Sanhedrin, the council that would have oversaw all of God's people and told them what they can do and not do and judge people for certain actions. They maintained the temple. These people have made the object of their faith not God, but personal gain and power. Power. They are focused on how much power and authority can they achieve, how much wealth can they amass. We know this because there's not even a second where they will consider whether or not Jesus is in fact the Messiah that they are preaching every single week in the synagogues and in the temple. I mean, they are proclaiming that the Messiah is coming and asking God to bring the Messiah and the Messiah is right before them and they only see him as a threat to their own power. So they want to kill him. They end up accomplishing that on Good Friday. But see, it's not just the religious elite. The rest of God's people, are not, they're not off the hook. It's not as if Jesus uses this example of the withered fig tree to speak about just the high priest and the religious leaders. He's speaking about God's people as a whole. Because the very people that just three days ago we're ushering Jesus into Jerusalem, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, please save us. In just a few short days, we'll we'll decry, crucify him. Crucify him. The very same people. Takes them one week to ask Jesus to save them, to say, we would rather release a murderer in Barabbas than see Jesus live another day. Crucify him. Why? Why? Well, because what they wanted Jesus to do was to save them from the Romans. They had their expectations and understanding of what the Messiah should look like. Jesus was not that. He's already messed up the temple. He's causing all these problems. He's going to affect their lifestyle. The religious leaders are against him. So we're against him too. See, God's people, they're exercising and living out withered faith. Because the object of their faith has shifted from God to personal gain to personal comfort, to personal power. And Jesus responds to Peter's observation when he says, hey, hey, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed yesterday is withered. And Jesus responds in verse 22. He answered them and said, have faith in God. He's redirecting the object of their faith. Don't have faith in personal power in personal gain in amassing personal comfort have faith in God he's revealing that the problem with God's people is that the object of their faith has shifted and they need to fix the object of their faith you see whenever you make something or someone the object of your hope and your love you will experience withered faith and it's easy to do that It's easy to make idols out of people and idols out of things and believe that these things will give us the hope and the peace and the love that we so desperately desire. And the result will be your faith will wither. But Jesus says something so simple: have faith in God. Make God the object of your faith, your hope, your love, your peace. And what you will discover is that your faith will be fruitful. It will be fruitful. See, I believe that Jesus is setting us up, as he was setting the disciples up, for one question. I wrote it out like this. How do you discern whether your faith is withering or fruitful? This is a really important question because it's the the entirety of what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, God's people, including us here 2,000 years later. How do you discern if your faith is fruitful or withering? You ready for the answer? Check your prayers. The answer is to check your prayers. Look at what Jesus says. He says, have faith in God, verse 22. And then he says, truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And if whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that the Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. How do you discover and discern whether or not your faith is fruitful or whether or not it's withering? You check your prayers. Because fruitful faith has a fruitful life of prayer. Those things go together. When you check how you pray, it will reveal, and it'll help you to evaluate the condition of your faith. Is it fruitful, or is it withering? And Jesus here pulls out two essentials. There are two essentials to fruitful prayer. I want to start with the second one, and we'll move to the first one, which is a little bit more shocking. And I think harder for us to to live out and even to pray. The first one is in verse 25. Verse 25, Jesus says this. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. The first essential for fruitful prayer, and therefore fruitful faith, is to have spiritual integrity when you pray. Spiritual integrity. What does that mean? It means that you are brutally honest about yourself. You are brutally honest about yourself. See, what Jesus says here is that when you pray, ensure that you are praying for the forgiveness of other people, that you're praying to release bitterness and the grudge that you hold, that you would forgive those that have harmed you so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you. Now, what Jesus is not saying here is that God will not forgive you unless you are perfectly forgiving other people. What Jesus is saying here is that if you have fruitful faith, and your faith is not just leaves, it's not just outer garments, you're trying to do the right religious things, you're trying to go to church, you're trying to pray, you're trying to read your Bible, because you think that you're going to perform for God, so you want to look good on the outside, but internally, you're withering. If your faith is fruitful then you are going to seek to forgive other people that have wronged you. Because here's the logic. Here's the understanding that you know deep in your heart. You know, first, that you are broken, you are messy, you are self-centered, you struggle to navigate life and make the right decisions, that you fail often. And so when you know that, you know that you need a God who will forgive you. It causes you to look to Jesus and say, I need a Savior. I need forgiveness for my sins. I am broken. I'm messed up. I cannot save myself. And then you read in the gospel as we hear every single Sunday and we celebrate all the time as God's people that we are forgiven by grace. That God loves us and he extends forgiveness to us because Jesus has died the death that we deserve. He was buried and he came forth resurrected and we are free and we are forgiven. A God who is so unlike us. He is holy and perfect. We are unholy and imperfect and yet God chose to forgive us through the person of Jesus Christ as we give our faith to him. When you know that, it causes you to say, how in the world could I not forgive someone else that has wronged me who is very much like me? They're sinful, they're broken, they're messy, just like me. If God, who is completely other than me, can forgive me, how could I not forgive those that have wronged me? It doesn't mean that it's easy, but Jesus is saying first, the first essential for fruitful prayer. For a faith that is flourishing, producing fruit and not withering, is that you are spiritually honest. You have spiritual integrity. You know who you are. You know your brokenness. And so therefore, you're willing to forgive other people that have wronged you, that have hurt you. It's almost as if Jesus is saying that prayer is kind of this spiritual reset. Because we are, it's so easy for us to begin to stack up all the things that we're doing right and compare ourselves to other people. And to think that we're not as bad as them, especially the people that we don't like or the people that hurt us. Like, well, you know, that I really have it together. And when you pray, it's that spiritual reset to say, wait, wait, no, no, no. They're just like me, I'm just like them and I need to let go of this bitterness. I need to let go of this grudge. I need to forgive them because I've been forgiven as well. That's the first essential of fruitful faith is to, is to have spiritual integrity. The second essential is this really shocking statement by Jesus in verse 23 and 24. And this is not like like Jesus is kind of exaggerating. He's being very literal here. And, And you may struggle to see that, but he's being completely honest. He says this, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, they're on the Mount of Olives, be taken up and thrown into the sea. Now on the Mount of Olives you can see the Dead Sea in the distance. So Jesus is saying, if you believe that on this mountain and you pray that God would pick up this mountain, the Mount of Olives, and throw it over there into the Dead Sea. And you do not doubt in your heart, but believe in what he says will come to pass, it will be done. Imagine that. He's looking at the disciples. He's looking at us. He says, listen, this mountain, if you believed in your heart that God would pick it up out of the earth and throw it into that sea in the distance and you believe it would come to pass, it will happen. Now, I want to ask you a question. How would you feel if someone prayed a prayer like that around you? If you went to a small group and someone prayed some wild prayer like that, Would you judge them? You may be like, that's a little much on the prayer there. But that's exactly what Jesus says. He says we're to pray like that. You see, I I think we kind of have this bifurcated prayer life. We have like our ordinary prayers. We pray to God. We thank God for who He is. We adore God for the things that He's done and His character and nature. It may be that the first part, having spiritual integrity, is something that we constantly work at. We, we confess to God our sin. We seek to forgive other people. Because in the Lord's prayer, Jesus says that, that we are to pray for our forgiveness as we also forgive those who trespass, who sin against us. So these, this is common. This is common prayer. Pray, confess, ask God, repent of the people that maybe you hold a grudge against. These are kind of normal prayers. But then we have these Extraordinary prayers. Not as common. Maybe it's a prayer for healing. Mental healing. Physical healing. Prayer for a broken relationship to be mended. We, we pray for these miracles to happen. But oftentimes, here's how we pray. In our minds, God, I'm going to pray for this thing, but I'm really going to think, I don't really know about it. I'm praying for you to change this medical diagnosis, God, and to heal this person. But let's hope the doctors do their job. I'm gonna pray for this broken relationship to be mended and a miracle has to take place here, but I think it's probably too far gone. Now we don't say that in our prayer life. Like no one's praying like, God, mend this relationship, but we just know it's too broken. You know. We don't pray like that. We don't say that, but we may think it. And oftentimes we even don't pray extraordinary prayers that we label extraordinary because we're like, what's the point? Jesus here says, if you pray that a mountain could be ripped out of the ground and thrown into the sea and you don't doubt in your heart and you believe it will happen, it will happen. And yet we pray these small prayers. We're afraid to pray big prayers with supernatural belief. Is that Jesus' intention? I don't believe it is. You see, I believe that fruitful prayer makes extraordinary prayers ordinary. Fruitful prayer and a fruitful faith makes extraordinary prayers ordinary. See, an essential, the second essential of having a fruitful life of prayer is to have a believing heart. You have to have spiritual integrity, but you have to have... A believing heart. Jesus says, if you believe in your heart and you do not doubt that it will be so. Do you pray like that? Now listen, if you pray, everyone here ends their prayer saying that because the word amen means so be it. So you're closing your prayer saying, in Jesus' name, so be it but do you believe it? See, when you close your prayer and say amen, it's not with a question mark, but that's how we pray. In Jesus' name, amen? So be it? I don't know, maybe. Jesus is not saying that you end your prayer with a question mark, you end it with an exclamation mark. God, so be it, I'm believing If if you can save my soul, if you created this world and this universe that is so beautiful and complex just for the word of your mouth, why would I believe that you can't do this thing? It's not too small for you. It's not too big for you. God, you can move a mountain and throw it into the sea. I'm going to believe that you can heal this person. I'm going to pray that you're going to mend this relationship, and I'm going to believe that it will happen. And when that doubt comes in my head, I'm going to cast that doubt out of my mind because I'm going to have a believing heart, believing that you can do it. So often we pray with a suspicious heart. We're called to have a believing heart, and yet we pray with a suspicious heart. And I'm going to say something, and I don't want to affect your prayer life, but it's probably going to affect your prayer life, so I'm just going to say it anyway, okay? Here's how we pray often in the American church. Here's how we couch our prayers in doubt because maybe we don't, want to kind of be put in a position where God doesn't answer our prayers according to our will, and we're like, we want to maybe protect God's reputation, we want to, you know, I don't know if you're going to do it, God, so I'm going to say this. Here's how it happens. We pray these big prayers, and then we say, but let your will be done. Now, should we pray for God's will to be done? Yes. Jesus tells us. We're to pray the kingdom of heaven come to earth that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the prayers that we pray for God's will to be done is about God's kingdom coming to earth. That it's invading every sphere of life and culture. It's about our life aligning with God's kingdom that we would be citizens of his kingdom. Jesus does not say that when we pray these prayers of faith, believing that God's going to do some extraordinary thing, but we believe it to be ordinary, that we need to add, but your will be done. God does not need us to ask him for his will to be done. It will be done. But yet, how do we pray? God, I'm, I don't, I'm going to defend your reputation here in case you don't do this according to my will, so I'm going to say, but your will be done. No, just pray prayers of faith. Pray believing Prayers. Next time you pray for healing, you're for restoration, for a miracle to take place, believe it will take place. You don't need to add, glitcher will be done. God has his sovereignty under control. He doesn't need you to help him with it. He doesn't need me. His authority is unmatched, and he will take care of it. See, we are to give our life of surrender to him. We're to believe that whatever God does is according to his will. And yet Jesus tells us that when we pray, we don't need to couch it in any extra language. We just need to say, so be it. God, this is what I'm praying. So be it. See, Jesus is inviting us when we pray to surrender our doubt. To give our doubt away. To pray believing prayers. You see, as all of this has taken place with the cursing of the withering tree and then the temple, the flipping over of the tables, and then the tree withered to its roots, it causes us to think about something that we see expressed in the rest of Scripture. And that is, God is no longer worshipped in a physical temple. There is no physical temple that you can go to. It was destroyed in 70 AD because the temple is now you. So you are the living temple housing the Holy Spirit. And you are not to come to God with doubt. You're to come to God with full confidence. The book of Hebrews says, come with confidence to the throne of grace. There is no outer court and inner court. There's just all the courts open. And you're invited to go to God at any moment, in any place, because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You don't need to go to a physical place. You don't have to be of a physical nationality or raise in a certain family. You can go to God at any moment because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what I want to ask you to do is to not rob God of his sovereignty because you doubt when you pray. Don't make the temple of the Holy Spirit that is you a den of robbers. Because you're praying without spiritual integrity. Or because you are praying with a believing heart. You see, God is not asking for your prayers to make sense, he's asking for your prayers to be full of confidence. Did you hear that? God is not asking for your prayers to make sense, he's asking for them to be full of confidence. You may be praying and be like, This is wild, God, but I'm coming confidently. That is what Jesus is saying. Why has Israel's faith withered? They have made the object of their faith, not God, and they have focused on achieving other things in the world than actually just pursuing God. And they've even lost how they're to pray. They've destroyed the temple, which is a house of prayer. They've desecrated it. And Jesus says, put put God as the object of your faith and pray believing prayers, full confidence. That is how you are to pray. See, and you can be confident. You can be confident when when you pray because Jesus did the miraculous. He went to the tree, the cross, and he allowed his body to wither on the tree. For your sake, he withered on the tree so that you could taste the sweet fruit of faith. That you could taste it and see that God is good and that you could live a life of fruitful prayer. A fruitful faith because despite the season that you are in maybe be a tough season maybe a season where you're battling doubt adversity pain despite the season that you are in your roots will not wither see Jesus went to the tree and his body withered so that you might go to God in prayer that you might pursue him in faith Full confidence knowing that even when there are leaves that are falling off your branches and you are not growing in the way that you desire and you're going through a difficult season in life, that your roots will not wither. They are rooted in Christ. They are rooted in the sacrifice of Jesus and the grace of God for you. So your prayers don't have to make sense. You just go to God in full confidence. That is how you pray, church. You have faith in God. You pray with spiritual integrity and you pray believing prayers. And when you say amen, you believe it. So be it, exclamation point, not a question mark. My prayer is tonight, as we're about to come to the table, as God's people, where we, we remember and we celebrate that Jesus broke his body and shed his blood for us, that we would come believing that Jesus can do the very things that we're asking that we would say, amen, so be it.